So to teach today, as some do, that you can lose your salvation is number one, it's to call Jesus a liar. And I'm not prepared to do that. And not only are you calling the Lord Jesus a liar, you are calling him a sinner because he will have disobeyed the Father's will. One of the questions many Christians have is, can I lose my salvation? Well, today on Search the Scriptures, Dr. Carl Brogy examines what the Bible has to say about the eternal security of the believer. Our study is in Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13, in a message entitled, The Lifestyle of the Saved. The passage is part of a message from an angel that appears during the tribulation and declares that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. He then introduces the term, the perseverance of the saints. That is, that those who have trusted in Christ will persevere until the end, never renouncing their declaration of faith. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he looks at various traits that are common amongst those who are truly saved. Three characteristics from this angel's message underscore the lifestyle of the saved. First, saved people are those who have perseverance. Saved people are those who have perseverance. Perseverance is a major central doctrine of the New Testament. It is basically someone who throughout their life, once they make a decision for Christ, confess Jesus, period. Look at verse 12, how it begins. Here is the perseverance of the saints. This third angel, in effect, is contrasting, again, those who capitulate to the worship of the Antichrist, who are eternally doomed with the saints who persevere. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Now, remember, in the New Testament, unlike in Catholicism, say, saints are a select few people in Catholicism. In the Bible, every born-again Christian is a saint. You're looking at St. Carl this morning. It is based not on performance or something you've done. It is based on the work of Christ. God declares every believer, even the most immature and compromised in the New Testament, he calls them saints because their holiness was gifted to them. Their righteousness was received by grace. The per, here then is the perseverance of the saints. And this is important because the genuine believer will persevere and he need not fear that he might reach some place in his life where he will deny Christ. Now, some would say the very fact that this phrase, the perseverance of the saints are here, could mean that they might be lost. Actually, the Bible in these two verses is teaching just the opposite. Think your way through this biblically. For instance, the Bible affirms that heaven is eternal. It's forever. That does not automatically mean that it's possible that heaven could be temporary. Or um, the Bible affirms that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. That does not automatically mean that there could be another way to God the Father. Well, you cannot assume that when the Scripture speaks here of the perseverance of the saints, that that means that some might not persevere. We're going to see that letting Scripture interpret Scripture, because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, that once one crosses over into salvation, he will persevere severe to the end. Now, what's unfortunate is that people often do their theology on the basis of human experience rather than based on the authority of Scripture. 
You don't interpret Scripture through human experience. You'll get into all kinds of trouble. You put your human experience under the authority of Scripture. Your experience doesn't stand over Scripture. It is to stand under Scripture. And so God here is describing from the believer's perspective that he will not abandon God. He will persevere, and we will see from God's perspective God will not abandon us. Now, Christians will sometimes naively ask, well, I understand that my salvation is a gift given to me by God, but could I not do something by which God could take it away? Someone called on the Bible line on Tuesday and asked that very question. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. If you're new to the Bible, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That covers the life of Christ while on earth and Acts, the first 30 years of church history. And then you come to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans, if you will. In the book of Romans, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is not something that is merited. You see the five solas of the Reformation on the window behind you. It's sola gratia, sola fide. It's grace alone without human merit. Grace is not earned, as some have falsely teach. It's grace without merit. The instrument faith by which you receive that is faith without works. Salvation is never earned or merited. It is the gift of God. Now, as you're turning to Romans 8, let me just remind you, when someone asks me the question, well, if salvation is gifted to you, could God take away this gift? And the answer is no. Romans 11:29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. They are irrevocable. They never change. In fact, irrevocable or without repentance, which is a little more literal, is the first word in the Greek New Testament. It's not the typical word order, but in Greek, when you wanted to emphasize or highlight or underline in red, you changed the word order. Literally, it says, for without repentance are the gifts in the calling of God. In fact, that is underscored in Romans 9 through 11. That's illustrated because he's talking about the nation of Israel. You see, Paul ends chapter 8 that we're going to look at in a moment that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, that, if that's true, God said he loved the Jewish people with an everlasting love. It seems like he abandoned them. And so in 9, he deals with Israel's election. In 10, he deals why Israel has rejected their Messiah. In 11, because God has loved them with an everlasting love, how he will in the future restore them. So look at the end of 8. Look at verses 38 and 39, Romans 8. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any cre other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The truths of Romans 8, 38 and 39 is an affirmation of what God said in Romans 8, 28. Many of you have Romans 8, 28 memorized. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who, and it's actually not a verb. The King James is best here. It's a noun. To those who are the called, he's speaking of a group of people, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul elaborates in verses 29 and 30 how God works all things together for good. Now, we often take that verse and we apply it to the uh, providences of 
life, and that's a legitimate and a good thing to do because God is working all things together for good. We are to give thanks in all things. But with that said, understand it in its original context. How are you working all things together for good, God? He explains beginning in verse 29. For, here's the reason, those whom he foreknew, and there are five words you should underline here. First, foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, underline the word predestined, to become conformed to the image of his son. He is describing five stages from beginning to end in this chain of salvation. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined for what purpose? To become conformed to the images of his son so that he, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, that he might be glorified. Now, people often use the word predestined today very loosely, and we say, well, you know, God chose some people to go to heaven and other people to go to hell. It's never used that way in the Bible, not once. It's used to describe what God does to a person after they get saved, that after you are born again, God has predestined you towards a purpose. And what is that purpose? Look at verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called underscore that verb called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He declared righteous, underscore that word justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified, underscore that word. It's the unbroken chain of salvation that begins with God's foreknowledge, progenoskel, prior knowledge. Paul uses it before Festus that the Jewish people knew beforehand, same verb, of what his life was like before he was converted. God in eternity past, because he's omniscient, he knows those who will believe and those who won't. If God didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. But God knowing that does not change in one bit your free will. But I want you to see that on the basis of God's foreknowledge, He called people, He predestined people, and everyone He predestined, past tense, He justified, past tense, and He glorified, past tense. Wait a minute. Glorification is a future dimension of our salvation when our body is changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's true. But in God's mind, it is as good as done because what he began, he will complete. Look at verse 31. He asks a rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Absolutely no one. For God reasons in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Of course he will. This too is a rhetorical question. Meaning if God did not spare his own precious son, then he won't withhold any kindness to you. And so when a Christian asks me as a pastor, well, I understand that my salvation is a gift given to me by God, but couldn't God take away my salvation? No, He cannot and He will not. To take away your salvation would be to interfere with the purpose for which He has predestined you, mainly for it to end up in your being glorified. It would require also a failure, not just in the purpose of God the Father that's underscored here in Romans, but it would also undermine the purpose of God the Spirit. Right out in the margin next to this, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. 14. Let me read to you about the Spirit's commitment for our eternal security. In Him, in Christ, Paul writes, you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
The message of truth is defined here as the gospel. Unfortunately, today we don't preach the gospel. We preach in a lot of circles Christian metaphors. Invite Jesus into your heart and you'll get saved. There's Joel Osteen at the end of every sermon. It's not found anywhere in the Bible, I hope you know. Invite Jesus into your heart, and if you need to use that metaphor to describe the gospel, you're not sharing it accurately. The message of truth is the gospel of your salvation. It's articular. I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, Paul will write. Having also believed, then the benefits come to you. You were sealed in Christ. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge and earnest, a down payment of our inheritance, this inheritance to come, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This, by the way, is very similar to 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells us that God sealed us and gave us the Spirit as a pledge in our hearts. Well, you say, maybe God would break the seal. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. For our salvation to be taken away would be a failure on the part of God the Father who has predestined us to a complete glorification. It would be a failure on the part of God the Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption, but it would also be a failure on the part of God the Son. Turn back to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. You're in Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right before uh, Acts. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, turn to John chapter 6. Again, the Apostle John gave us five books in the New Testament. First, second, third, John. Those are three letters, the Gospel of John and the Revelation. And John explains a lot of the things in the Revelation in his gospel and in his three epistles. John 6, look at verse 37. A few words you might want to circle. The first word is all. All that the Father gives me, Jesus is speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not underscore that, not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will of my, my own will, but the will of him, the Father who sent me. This is the will of Him, the Father who sent me. Then of all, underscore that word, all He has given me, I lose nothing, underscore lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds, it's a word that means to see with perception, to see with understanding. You have to understand the gospel before you believe it. And there's a lot of gospel presentations going around that a person couldn't get saved by. Well, if you're lost today, invite Jesus in your heart. That's not the gospel. Now, the gospel is simple enough. Jesus said a child can get it. But you must know you're bankrupt, unable to be your own Savior, that your sin condemns you and makes you a child of wrath. But there's a substitute who has died and raised and took that wrath for you. You have to behold the Son, but just understanding the gospel is not enough. Then you have to believe in Him. And the promise is you will have eternal life, and I myself, Jesus said, will raise Him up on the last day. That is an irrefutable promise to all who come to Him. Jesus, understand, came to earth not to do His own will, but the Father's will. And this is the will of the Father, that every single one, without exception, losing none, who looks to the Son and believes in, in Him, will be raised up on the last day. So for Jesus to have someone who looked to the Son, who believed in Him, and then not to raise Him up on the last day would be to disobey his father, and he did not come to disobey him. He came to obey him. So to teach today, as some do, 
that you can lose your salvation is, number one, it's to call Jesus a liar. And I'm not prepared to do that. And not only are you calling the Lord Jesus a liar, you are calling him a sinner because he will have disobeyed the Father's will because we just read the Father's will without exceptions that every single one None lost that believe will be raised. And not only are you calling him a liar and a sinner, you are calling him weak. To say you can lose your salvation is to say that he is incapable of doing what the Father promised. Now, in all fairness to my brethren who teach you can lose your salvation, most of them have not thought it through. In fact, they haven't thought through a lot. That's why they come to the conclusion you can lose it. But they're not consciously typically saying, I believe Jesus is weak, a liar, and a sinner. But in practice, if you really understand what the Lord is saying, that is precisely what they are doing. Our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that all that have been given to him, not a single solitary person lost, will be raised up on the last day. And so for a child of God not to be raised up is not only a failure within the Godhead, it brings disunity within the Godhead. The Son would need to change the Father's eternal will. The Father would need to change the Spirit's purpose to seal us for the day of redemption. And the Son would have to stop continually interceding for us and to undo the Father's will that He came to complete. That's total disunity in the Trinity. So go back to Revelation 14. Here is the perseverance of the saints. And the first of three characteristics found in this angel's message that summarize the lifestyle of a saved person is they have a secure relationship with God. But notice also, saved people are people who have an obedient faith. An obedient faith. Reading further now into verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. This is where it gets even more personal when John says that God's saints, God's saved ones, keep the commandments of God. In other words, the genuine believer is known by keeping the commandments of God. Now, the way some Christians teach, they almost say, well, they keep the commandments of God without failure. But those two words are not there in the text. In fact, the word keep, though, is a present active participle, tereo, and, and it does imply a lifestyle. Look, we all sin. We all stumble in many ways. He who is without sin, the Scripture says, is calling God a liar. But what I want you to see is that when God credits you with righteousness, because we have none on our own, it is given as a gift, and God sees you as a holy one, a saint. For the first time ever, He can place the Spirit of God in you. You're made a new person on the inside, and your lifestyle begins to change where the pattern and the desire of your life is to obey the living God. Now, the commandments of God are something that delight the saints of God. Now, the Scripture does not teach that the difference between a true believer and a false believer is that a true believer never sins and a false believer does. No, the difference between a genuine believer and someone who's not is that when the genuine believer sins, one, he's disturbed by it, he's troubled by it, he's grieved because the Spirit within him is grieved, and sometimes he's even disciplined by God because those whom the Lord loves, whom he has dictated to become a child of God, which is uh, dictated on receiving Jesus, John 1, 12, he disciplines. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
a believer is troubled by his sin. He is bothered by his sin. Where a false believer is not troubled at all. In fact, very often he becomes, as Romans 1 indicates, an evangelist for sin. He doesn't want to drink alone. He wants to get someone else to drink with him. He doesn't want to be immoral alone. He encourages other people to be immoral with him. Years ago, we used to often ask, I don't hear it much anymore, but we used to say, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? Listen, anyone who does not really care about the things of God, anyone who does not demonstrate the fruit of a second birth from above by a lifestyle committed to the commandments of God, and they think they're saved, they have indeed deceived themselves. And so what God does in this verse is He weds the doctrine of perseverance with the doctrine of works together. In fact, why don't you turn back to John chapter 10 for a moment. Let's look at one more text. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. Go to John chapter 10, and um, let's start in verse uh, 22. Jesus is up on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Again, if you go to Jerusalem and you're in the Mount of Olives, you can look straight across, and you will see the Temple Mount where these 144,000 are standing. And right on the southern part of the Temple Mount, there's a set of steps. They're called the Southern Steps. It's where Peter, Peter came out and preached. We discussed that when we were there in Israel last time. It's where Gamaliel preached to Paul. It's where the rabbis in Jerusalem would preach. It's where Pentecost took place. And right at the bottom of the steps are all these mikvahs, these gigantic bathtubs, where they baptized over 3,000 people that day. Right above the southern steps, there's a mosque there today, but there was one Solomon's portico, and that's where Jesus is. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication is also called Hanukkah. You've heard of that, right? Or the Feast of Lights. The Feast of Dedication, it was winter. That's when it happens. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You say, Wait a minute, Pastor. These are religious people. They're observing the festival. They're celebrating God's faithfulness there when the temple was uh, recaptured. And yet Jesus says they're not his sheep. Well, how do I know if I'm one of his sheep? Well, he's going to tell you in Revelation 12, just like he does here in verse 27. Notice, my sheep hear my voice, and and I know them, and they follow me. Those who are right with God, whose hearts have been brought in sync to the voice of God. And I'm not saying, hey, Carl, this is God Almighty. That's not what we're talking about here. When the Bible speaks of your hearing the voice of God, it's not typically, with the exception of a few Old Testament saints, where you literally hear His voice. Today, if you hear His voice, Hebrews says, He's talking about hearing it through the written Word of God. When you are reading the Scripture, you are hearing the voice of God Almighty. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Wait a minute, Pastor. I know some people were saved, but they're no longer saved. 
In fact, they totally renounced the Lord Jesus. They must have lost their salvation. Be careful when you say that because the Bible makes a huge distinction between those who outwardly confess Christ and those who have more than with the mind have believed with the heart. But pastor, what about these people who, you know, they come down front and, and they say the sinner's prayer and they get baptized and Today they want nothing to do with God and they've renounced the faith and they live immoral, wicked lives. Well, the Bible would say they've never been saved. Remember what John said, put in the margin next to this verse, 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19, let me read to you from his first letter. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. He's talking about teachers in the church who appear to be incredibly orthodox, but now renounce the living God. They went out from us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. John is describing those who go for a while, but then they drift away. This is how Jesus said it in Luke 8. And by the way, Jesus thought this will be true in every church. Listen to Luke 8, 13. He is in the parable of the sower describing those who have never truly been saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They're stirred emotionally, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, when you see the word believe without the preposition in accompanied with it, most of the time it just refers to head knowledge. The demons believe and tremble. Jesus spoke of the Jews who had believed him, and then he turns around and he says, you are of your father the devil. Whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition, in 100% of the cases in the New Testament, it's describing genuine saving faith. Listen, the faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first it was not a true, genuine, born-again, Bible-believing kind of faith. And people who some make a false start, they're stirred, they're emotional, but they don't persevere. Why? Because it never reached the heart. It never changed them. Notice, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give. We don't earn it. He gives eternal life to them. It is a gift. That's what secures you. Listen, if you could do something to lose your salvation, that would mean you would have to do something to earn your salvation. And this dear friend who called this week, friend, I, I don't know who he was, but on the Bible line, he was often obviously very confused because he was in a church that was saying, well, if you do this certain sin, you're, you're severed from Christ and you lose your salvation. If it's a small sin, you're okay. But if it's a big sin, oh, you're in big trouble. Listen. When God saves us, those whom He foreknew, He glorified. There is an unbroken chain. He loses none. He saves us for the day of redemption. When people put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are sealed in their justified state, and nothing they can do will ever separate them from that position. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at the lifestyle of the saved as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. If you'd like to listen again or share this message with a friend, use the Search the Scripture app for mobile devices or navigate online to searchthescriptures.org. 
Search the Scriptures is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to help us in our goal to lead people to Christ and to grow believers in their relationship with Him, call 877-787-7478 and ask about how you can help. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the lifestyle of the saved. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.